is Our American Stories, and it's time for a story from one of our favorite contributors, Herb London. He's brought us his tribute to his father, Yonkel, for our Final Thought series, and also his tribute to his two boyhood heroes and role models, Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio. And his latest is a reflection on the game of baseball at the beginning of the baseball season. It may be hard for youngsters to believe But a generation ago, baseball was America's favorite game. I grew up memorizing baseball statistics and taking the baseball encyclopedia to the bathroom as a ritual. Compared to basketball and football, baseball is in the doldrums. The free zone that accompanies a LeBron James dunk and the Rock'em Sock'em features of football appeals to young people weaned on television excitement. The opening of the baseball season on the heels of March Madness is like a cooling down period a moment for reflection rather than exhilaration. For baseball, as opposed to basketball, is a hot, lazy day in the sun when rhythms of life slow down. For the thrill-seeking generation next, baseball lost its status as the national game because Americans want instant gratification and the latest thrills at their athletic contests. Baseball gives its fans a different kind of experience, one in which discussion at the game is encouraged, During the lapses in activity between pitches and every half inning, people in the stands talk. Rarely do fans talk at a basketball game. There isn't an opportunity to do so. Recently, I went to a spring training game in Fort Myers, Florida, home of the Minnesota Twins. The game was played in a double-A stadium, which stands on top of the field. Octogenarians who have fond memories of baseball's glory days have retired to Florida and sell tickets and flip hamburgers. It is charming to see these retirees wait eagerly for an autograph of Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. At the beginning of the game, local retirement centers are honored. I overheard heated conversations about players of yesteryear. Was Eddie Matthews a better third baseman than Harmon Killebrew? Baseball is a game for those with a memory. In the twilight of one's life, it is a sport easy to digest. One's memory for bank accounts and investments may fade, but baseball lives as an indelible mark. Unfortunately, the modern baseball game is not what it once was. It doesn't help that stadiums are mammoth and largely homogeneous. The friendly environs of Tippett's Field have not been duplicated, even at Jacobs Field, the much-acclaimed Cleveland Indians stadium. Players today, even when exceptional, don't have the personalities of the game's earlier heroes, such as Willie Mays, the Say Hey Kid. Ted Williams, the splendid splinter, and Jolton Joe DiMaggio. The baseball has adopted its own version of trash-talking, once monopolized by basketball players. And some baseball players do a dance around home plate when they hit a home run. These recent practices detract from the game and undermine the gentility, once uniquely associated with baseball. Baseball owners are often foolish and greedy and can certainly learn lessons from the owners of the National Football League. Baseball has sought gimmicks like Bat Day to sell the game. Kids don't see much baseball on television because of the dominance of night games and as a consequence usually do not share the enthusiasm for baseball I enjoyed as a child. Yet with all of these caveats, with all of the flaws that accompany the game, when April arrives and umpires shout, play ball, I still get a rush of anticipation. The ball is probably juiced and pitching talent is diluted through expansion. But the thought that the Chicago Cubs might duplicate its World Series victory after being in the wilderness for 108 years 
or that the Cleveland Indians might ascend to the big dance in October is bound to give this upcoming season special meaning. And thank you, Herb, for that great report. And now it's time for one of our favorite contributors. And it's a very different kind of contributor. Stephen Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams, and not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College in New York and was the foremost expert on patriarchy and a guy who daydreams a lot. And we now bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us what he calls his mandatory disclosure. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. I am at a dinner with my wife and about 10 other people, all very religious. We are beginning uh, the dinner, at the beginning of dinner, a minister looks uh, at me and says, clearly giving uh, me a great honor, that uh, he would be most pleased if I would say grace. My wife blanched, suspecting that I had never heard grace uh, said, and certain that I uh, have never um, said grace. I myself am not exactly sanguine about the situation, never having been religious by any definition of the term. But with no way out, I am certain that humiliation is the only possible outcome, uh, and I resign myself to biting the bullet. So I say... Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us food when so many are hungry, drink when so many are thirsty, and friends when so many are lonely. Amen. The others seem to be satisfied. And by the way, that was beautiful, Stephen. Beautiful, perfect, short and sweet. I'm a Christian who really sometimes can't believe how long people can go on, A, a little bit jealous, and B, a little bit impatient because I'm getting hungry. This is Our American Stories, two of our favorite contributors in one segment. Herb London, a New Yorker, and Steve Goldberg, a New Yorker. And that's the thing about this show. You hear all walks of life, every accent in the world. By the way, go to our Shiloh segment, and you'll hear a great Alabaman voice, the great Winston Groom, the author of... You bet. You know the show. What's the movie? Farce Gump. And, of course, the... Great nonfiction, I think one of the great nonfiction works on war, Shiloh. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to check out that and all that we do. This is Our American Stories, the American voices from all over this great country.
is Our American Stories, and today we have Faith bringing us another story from the villages in Florida. And it's not just a retirement community, folks. The villages have over 600 holes of golf, 2,200 clubs, and over 150,000 residents over the age of 55. And we've been sending Faith, our intrepid 21-year-old producer, to get stories from those residents. Take it away, Faith. Margie Bates is an 87-year-old villager and has lived in the villages for quite some time now. And on a beautiful Friday morning, she invited me over to her home so that she could share her story with me. Sorry, <laughs> Good morning, back. Margie. How are you? How are you? Good. Are you ready for sunshine today? It's warm outside. Huh? You feeling good today? Yeah, I am. I'm feeling good most days, you know, just to get a bit draggy. But I'm getting over that, I think. Before we get into how Margie got to the villages, however, did you notice her accent? Well, how did she even end up in the States? Because Margie, she grew up in London, England with her family. Now, this is probably not the London that you are thinking of. With Big Ben, the giant Ferris wheel, the London Eye, and the changing of the guard. This was London during World War II. Watching dogfights and hearing bomb sirens growing up? Can't imagine what that would do to you. Or how that would affect you in your life. What was it like growing up during World War II? Not too nice. Because <laughs> I'm living in London, we got... You know, a lot of bombing. Uh, uh, my dad was working in London then. Uh, uh, but then, uh, when it first started, I can remember when I was probably 10 years old, the day they d- declared war. And it was Sunday. And uh, nobody, I mean, I suppose the adults had talked a lot about it, but, um, you know, I wasn't too aware of much. And I just, I remember saying to my sister, should we get under the bed? <laughs> you know, like, like immediately the Germans were coming for us. So that was kind of interesting growing up, how people, you know, we couldn't show a light. We had to have this uh, blackout paper on the, on the windows. Some people painted their windows black, which is, must have been awful to get off. Um, so it was, um, I remember uh, when it started, and my sister uh, got married in the August of, of that year. Uh, uh, so we had the wedding at home, and I remember that evening was when we had the, uh, uh, the Battle of Britain, and the Germans, because we were in England, we could, they sent over all their planes, and they were having dogfights up there, and uh, we kept running outside to look at that. But then I kept running back. My dad had fixed up the cellar so we could sleep down there. Um, uh, so I kept going out looking, but then it scared me that I'd go run down into the cellar again and come back and look. Uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very scary time. And uh, we, we could, because of where we lived, we were close to railway stations where they do a lot of bombing. 
And uh, so we had uh, um, we had a lot of uh, you know houses bombed around our area. Um, as I say, we would go down in the cellar to sleep at night. And uh, we did have a house, probably it was around the corner, but it was probably only six houses away from us that was badly bombed and everybody was killed, you know, in that house. Um, my dad went out to check what, because you could tell it was close, and uh, stumbled over a body, which was absolutely horrible for him. I remember going to school or something and the siren would sound and uh, I remember this one day I darted into there were some uh, like apartment type houses down the street from us and they had little porches with glass doors and I remember getting going in there when the siren sounded uh, and, and I thought I was what a silly place to go because <laughs> there was all this glass in there. Uh, but then eventually, as I say, it changes you what you would have been doing in your life. Not only did Margie see the devastation of World War II, she had some personal loss as well. At 14 years old, Margie's father passed away. She told me the story. She said it was in the middle of the night her father sat up in bed, and her mother asked him, Honey, what's wrong? And he said, Oh, nothing. I just, I just need a smoke. And that night, he had a heart attack. Perfectly healthy, she said. It was quite a shock to all of them. To add even more hurt and pain, her brother was off fighting in Africa during World War II. So when he came home a year later, adjustment to life without dad, that must have been hard. I don't think I dwelt on it too much because of how old I was. Because uh, I miss my dad a lot. Uh, Were you was, close? Huh? Were you close? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody was close in my family, you know. Uh, I remember as a kid, one of the things I used to do, and I don't know if it was just on a Friday evening, but I'd go to the... Uh, you used to go to... Uh, work on the underground um, and I'd go and meet him and then we'd walk home hand in hand and I, I think then he used to give me my pocket money so <laughs> uh, but he, he was he was a good dad yeah. yeah I'm so thankful that Margie has memories of her father those sweet memories that she holds in her heart while I was there she showed me a picture of herself sitting on her daddy's lap I could tell she was a daddy's girl. There's nothing like a sweet relationship between father and daughter. The war had just ended and time, of course, moved forward, leading Margie to meet her husband, Bill Bates, an American boy. We met at an ice skating rink in uh, Richmond, England. My girlfriend and I, that I worked with, uh, once in a while I'd go home with her and we'd go skating. Uh, I wasn't much of a skater, but uh, if I skated with somebody, <laughs> it was okay. So we were there this night, and uh, a friend of his, who I had now, I can't remember how I had met him, but anyway, he was a skater. He was in the Air Force with Bill, 
Um, and he had brought Bill to the skating rink. Bill didn't skate at all. Um, so, you know, the, he introduced me to him and that was it. <laughs> so he, he took me to the station because we both had to get the train to go home. And uh, so I, th- I think uh, after that, we just dated. Did you hit it off right away? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of him when you first saw him? Well, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just went over and talked to him. I never thought about him being the one. <laughs> you know, you meet some people and say, oh, you know, taken in by their looks or whatever. But, uh, so he was... Um, uh, Actually, he was the first person I took home, even though I had lots of boyfriends before that. Uh, and I, I was just 21 and he was 20. So I, because he didn't have any family here, you know, I took him home first time to dinner. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because he didn't eat this later, but when we were first there, um, it was Sunday dinner, so he had a big dinner, and uh, he he said, "Could he have some bread with some uh, jelly?" Everybody said, "Jam and bread," you know. <laughs> Seems so funny, um, but that was, I guess, he was young, and that's what he'd maybe eaten anyway. So he, right away, he enjoyed being with family and getting to come over and uh, um, so he just you know, my family liked him right away but they thought some things that he ate were a little bit strange <laughs> and when we come back more from Margie Bates and Faith's visit visit to the villages and well Bill was an American boy and that's what Margie saw and we learned there Margie lost her her dad way too early at 14. When we come back, this unlikely story from the villages, this lady from London, how did she get to the United States? More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Faith's conversation with Margie Bates. We learned that Margie grew up in London at the toughest time in London's history, no doubt. And that was the siege of the Nazis on London itself, the firebombings, the attacks. And, well, she met an American boy. While she was there, she lost her dad, and we picked things up where Faith left off. After dating for a handful of years, they got married. And Bill's time serving in England was up. So both of them were moving back to the States. Well, back to the States for Bill. Not so much back home for Margie. One can only imagine what that must have been like. Picking yourself up and moving to a whole new country. But not only that, she was going to be living with her in-laws. Were you homesick when you came? Oh yeah, terribly. (laughs) 
because I had gone from living in London most of my life. Uh, we moved to London when I was five. Um, and then we went straight to Bill's parents who had a rice farm in Arkansas. And, uh, they were really nice, but he, he went to work on the farm and left me, you know, with his mother. <laughs> and we had the, you know, jet lag. So um, I probably didn't get up till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was, she was very nice, but I think she, whether she decided she wasn't going to wait on me or something, but I expected like my family would have, you know, made tea or made me breakfast. I don't know, perhaps she made me breakfast. But anyway, that, that first day, was awful, I think. And, but she was very nice, but I just didn't feel like it was my house. I mean, I would help her do washing up, and, and we did the washing, the laundry together. So yeah, I got, you know, I got to be okay with her. But I really couldn't wait to get out of there. I did a lot of crying in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I didn't stay there for hours and cry, I just, you know, get a little upset. Bathroom's always a good place to go and nobody's gonna interfere with <laughs> you doing. So it, it was a big, big change. Culture shock, I guess you call it. There's nothing quite like the feeling of homesickness. It's hard. It seems like all you want is a hug from your mother. I'm sure for Margie, the food was different. The place was different. So adjustment was incredibly difficult. Change, no one's really quite ready for it, I would say. Change is necessary oftentimes. It strengthens and grows us in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have. Would your family think about you coming here? <laughs> My mother thought, oh, I thought Bill would just go home when it was done. And I said, <laughs> I wasn't going to date somebody that long just to say, oh, well, goodbye. <laughs> so uh, they they never, I think they didn't like it, but they liked him. And uh, they never said anything bad that I shouldn't be doing this or whatever. So, uh, and I think when you're that young, you don't, um, I knew I would miss them, but... You don't stop to think about all that stuff, you know. So, do you still miss England? Yeah, I. I mean, you get to a point where wherever you are is is home. Um, but I, I was fortunate enough that I went often enough, you know. Um. So after some time of living in the country of Arkansas, basically in the middle of nowhere. Margie and her husband Bill made a road trip. They set out on their journey from Arkansas to California. An 1,800-mile journey with a five-week-old baby in their backseat. But they were determined. This was an opportunity for Bill to be able to go to a good school. Well, I, I had no idea how far away it was. And we drove and uh, uh, in the summer, and I'm sure my in-laws must have thought we were crazy. Didn't have good motels 
in those days of hotels. And I remember stopping uh, because I would go take a look at it. I didn't want to go in some flea bag place. <laughs> but um, none of them were great in those days, and not at all like hotels now. Uh, so I remember like the one night when we uh, when we stopped and then washing baby bottles, you know, in the little bathroom sink, I guess it was. So we were a bit crazy. Margie and Bill loved California. After living in California for a handful of years and having a couple kids along the way as well, Margie's husband, Bill, well, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is a disorder of the central nervous system that affects movement, often including tremors, and handshaking, which meant he had to quit his job. Parkinson's disease is actually what led them to the villages. We had been living in uh, Chula Vista in San Diego County, and uh, we had a very big house. And we also, because of Bill having Parkinson's, we didn't have a good support group. So we thought, well, we would come out here and take a look not thinking that we bought the next day. And what was it like when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's? It sort of wasn't shocking because I didn't know anything much about it. So, you know, it was one of those things that, oh, you know, we'll take care of this sort of thing. But then, because he really wasn't having symptoms, he was a little handshaking. It was strange because he said, oh, that was, uh, uh, his father had had a little bit of that. Well, I had never noticed his father having it. So it took a while for the doctors to diagnose that. But for a long time, it was, um, didn't really bother anything much. He always kept up his exercising and uh, used to go to the pool and work out. I think I would say probably until we came here, which then he probably had it about several years and, and didn't really stop him doing anything. And the same when we came here, but it's been a gradual uh, thing where it got worse. And, uh, and you could not convince him that he couldn't do stuff because he was a man. <laughs> Don't go outside, honey, you can't do that. Yes, I can. <laughs> it wasn't all bad, you know, like especially at first. We made good friends with the Parkinson's group. It's something I think that takes, you know, you just sort of live with it. Another thing in life that you put up with, you know. After living there for a while, of course, Parkinson's doesn't tend to get better. Instead, Bill got worse and eventually had to go into rehab. But the last time he was in a rehab, and uh, he was supposed to be there for good uh, because of falling and things like that. Um, so he, they did not have a room for him. And so I said, you know, you're coming home. That's, and I wish I had made that decision a long time before. Uh, so anyway, he came home, and I can't remember now. It was around Christmas time, I think. Still okay to a point. He was starting to have trouble with his swallowing, 
which is what happens with Parkinson's. Invariably, that's what happens to everybody. And when we come back, our final segment with Faith and Margie Bates, and this is our continuing series, our 21-year-old producer, our newest uh, addition to our American stories, on the road in the villages in Florida, bringing us Margie Bates' story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Faith Garcia, joining Margie Bates at the Villages. And when we left off last, Margie's husband, Bill, well, things were getting worse because of his bout with Parkinson's disease. And then, of course, he was losing weight, and uh, anyway, hospice people did not want him uh, to be eating in case he choked Um, which you know I was quite upset with that because to me he wasn't getting any worse so they sort of stopped feeding him except for um, you know soft foods and drinks and he had he was fortunate he had this wonderful caregiver Rosa and uh, so then it was just downhill from there Uh, and I was looking I have a a picture of he and I when he was much younger and uh, I was sort of comparing how he looked you know because he got so thin and so pale Uh, but it was almost like I didn't see him like that you know Uh, I guess that's what happens when you be married a long, long time, you know. So we would have been married uh, 63 years in the May following. So you feel like you just saw him still as his young self, or? Yeah, well, I I didn't like the way he looked, um, but, you know, that's what happens when you don't... I mean, he lost such a lot of weight because the hospice... um, they had their own way of doing things, and he would always still try and get out of bed. And and up till they started with him, um, he he could do that with help or put him in the wheelchair. But then they decided that it would be better if he didn't get out of bed. And uh, he would still insist he was okay to get up. He could walk. Nobody could tell him that he couldn't. So then they, uh, uh, the nurse then that would come, uh, she said, okay, we'll let you see if you can. So she got on one side of him and Rosa got on the other, and then he started to stand up, but, but he couldn't. By then, he really got too weak. Just last year, Bill Bates passed away 
And after Bill's passing, Margie was left with a lot of reflection. Having the same person by your side for nearly 60 years and then having them die, that's extremely difficult. Not only that, but people who have lost longtime spouses describe living without them like trying to walk around with one leg. March 11th. Was it from Parkinson's? Well, you know, they say you don't pass away from Parkinson's, but you pass away from what, which doesn't make sense to me, because you pass away from what Parkinson's does to you. And uh, he was, um, he had a few falls, which is natural for Parkinson's, and uh, had some injuries from that. How did you deal with it when you felt lonely after Bill passed away? How did I feel? Uh, Well, it's hard to describe, you know. You just feel lost. Um, I I just, you, you have an awful lot of looking back and thinking, I should have done this. Because when you're together all those years, You know, I can see times when I wasn't the best of people, you know, just like anybody else. So, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything (laughs) bad, but, you know, get mad with each other and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. So that brought a lot of stuff back to where, uh, you know, I felt a little guilty about some things. Yeah, the only thing when he was going through... Uh, the last year or so because he loved sweets and the sweets affected his medication so made him think he could do things and get a little mad Um, and and I think to myself you know I was really very cautious about him having this and uh, he loved bananas and um, if he it was kind of funny because I, he'd have a banana with his breakfast, but if he was, didn't matter how many he'd had, if he was driving by there in his wheelchair, he'd just reach up and grab a banana, put a big smile on his face, and then I'd say, you can't have that. <laughs> so, you know, it makes you think some of those times I should have let him have it, you know, but... You just, when you're looking after them, you just do what you think is best for them, you know. It's sweet that she still saw him as her bill. She still loved him and wanted to take care of him. It really makes you think. It makes you think about how you treat those around you, especially your family. Are those fights that we have, the bickering, things that we can't seem to let go, the little grudges, Are they really worth that last word that we want to get in? Margie certainly didn't think so. She didn't have huge regrets. But she did wish that she could have taken back some things. Her self-reflection and her introspection should be emulated. We should consider how we love those around us as well. And maybe there are more things that we need to just let go. Margie has now been learning to readjust to life without Bill. 
along with overcoming injuries from falls that she has had herself. So she tries to move forward for motivation and confidence because it's easy to lose your confidence. But Margie refuses to live life in fear. And she moves forward, and at 87 years old, she's starting a new chapter in her life. I mean, that leaves the rest of us without excuse. From, from having all the things that happened to me, you know, get fracture in my back and then not walking for a long time. I mean, I could walk, but resting. Gradually, I think I lost my confidence uh, that I had before. Uh, but it's, uh, it's coming back. Confidence in what? In myself, I think, you know, because you spend so much time you not doing anything, and that wasn't me, you know. So, uh, and, and I try to uh, be more confident because, uh, you know, it's gradually coming back. It, it took a while, you know, and I hadn't been driving for so many months uh, to do that and to worry about if I fell again. But uh, that's all getting past, so I feel like I'm more myself. You know, and then I can tell because for a long time there, um, I I didn't really want to do anything. I couldn't focus. Is what happened. Uh, you know, I think I can do this. I don't know. I'll watch TV. You know. So starting back doing things for yourself was difficult. It, well, I don't. I wouldn't say difficult. It was just slower. I had to, you know, because I couldn't move too fast anyway. So like taking a shower, I'd have to, you know, give myself plenty of time. I find it's recently, when you think about somebody dying, it's, it's very hard for me to think, you know, one minute they're there and the next minute they're not, you know, like, where did they go? Um, it's probably you'll go through that when you get older. It's just not something you think about much, you know. Oh, they've passed away, you know. But um, it makes you think a little bit more about death somehow. I mean, you always assume, oh, they've gone to heaven. And then, then, uh, then you wonder, well... You know, I was brought up a Catholic, so you always heard about purgatory. And then sometimes I think it's purgatory on earth, you know. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, um, you know, and Christ said, you will be with me in heaven. Margie has brought us a lot of things to consider. Life, death, family, There's so many other wonderful things that she shared, but I'm just thankful that I got the time that we did. Thanks, Margie, for sharing your story with me. And thanks, Faith, for doing that. And my goodness, what an honest voice. Straight as an arrow. It's why we love talking to old people and kids. No nonsense. No time for it. No reason for it. No airs. We look forward to the next... Next story from the villages are Faith, Margie Bates, and Bill Bates. We got to know him. 
married 60 years, and you could feel the pain and the loss. This is Our American Stories. stories and we hear a lot about drugs in the news but what we never hear about is how these drugs get made the blood the sweat the tears that go into them all the scientists all the dollars all the tests and more tests and all that goes in to the making of these drugs before they ever get into the bloodstream of patients but now we bring you one story the true story of one doctor turned entrepreneur. We discovered this story on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and his incredible fight to get a life-saving drug into the hands of patients. Cancer is the second biggest killer of Americans. And you often can't see it coming. Sometimes you don't even notice as it eats away at your body. The best you can do is hope that your doctor identifies it early. And if you don't detect the cancer early enough, it might spread from just a few cells on one organ to the whole organ, or to lymph nodes, or even other organs. Bladder cancer is no different, and the number of Americans it attacks is staggering. About 75,000 new cases of bladder cancer occur every year and over half a million people are walking around um, with bladder cancer. The cancer first attacks just the outer layer of your bladder. It's called superficial bladder cancer. Okay, the, the average age of someone diagnosed with bladder cancer is 73. Okay? Most cases of bladder cancer are superficial. And if you can cure them, they won't progress to advanced disease and kill the patient, right? So there are 16,000 deaths from bladder cancer in the US. So the trick is, if you can catch them early, if most of those 75,000 per year, most of those cases are, are early stage, if you can catch them early and treat them effectively, you're gonna cut down on that death rate. Luckily, there's a drug to treat superficial bladder cancer before it progresses to invasive bladder cancer. And it's remarkably effective. Even so, for two out of 10 patients, the drug will fail and they will still have cancer. And if you are one of those two, your only option used to be a cystectomy. If it progresses to invasive, you need to take out the patient's bladder. And living without a bladder is no duck walk. Taking someone's bladder out is a horrible thing. 
you know, they have to self-catheterize. Sometimes they try to, the doctors try to give what's called a neobladder. They make a, a small pouch of bladder from a piece of your bowel. And it's, it's you know, you're prone to infections. You're, it's so, it's so, it's horrible. It's horrible for patients. And even at that, the patient will ultimately die of the bladder cancer. Um, because, you, you, you know, it's very hard to get everything. But what if cutting out your bladder wasn't the only thing a doctor could do? What if there was a miracle drug, one that could prevent you from living with a catheter for the rest of your life? And it would save your life. Wouldn't you want to try a drug like that? Well, that drug exists. It's called Valstar, and bladder cancer patients have been hearing its name for over a decade now. But Valstar almost never made it into the hands of patients at all. And it wasn't because it was too expensive. This is the story of one small pharmaceutical company and their fight to save the lives of bladder cancer patients. Their story is so incredible that you have to hear it from the horse's mouth. The voice you've been listening to is Dr. Joseph Golfo, who is the chief operating officer of the company that created Valstar, Anthra Pharmaceuticals. And we start his story and how he came to Anthra. The VCs, the venture capitalists, the big money guys who had backed Anthra knew that they had a great drug, but they were having problems getting that drug to the market. So Anthra was a company that was founded by the uh, Mervyn Israel. Mervyn was at uh, Harvard. And uh, when I showed up, it was basically a restart. The, um, the VCs... Um, did not like the way things were progressing. They really didn't have anyone in the company who um, had my kind of background. So they basically, they, I think they had up to 16 employees and they just restarted the company. Dr. Gofo already had a job he loved, but Anthra offered him his dream job. How do you turn down um, to go and be the number two guy at a venture back company? Um, you know, when, when here I wanted to, I was getting an MBA and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run these little biotech companies. Yet all too soon, Dr. Golfo learned the difficulties of running a small business. As it turns out, it's not as easy as it looks on TV. I now know why Jesus picked 12 apostles. When you have a little company, uh, just by force of will and your presence, walking around the halls you can touch everyone enough they can get a piece of you they can understand you know know that you're honest and, and trustworthy and follow your lead you know what happened then we hired the 13th employee and all hell broke loose there's a magic number <laughs> I'm saying it's 12 to 13 where one person just can't manage the group anymore and it was, you know, I would do a lot of traveling. I'd go visit the clinical sites. I'd go visit various experts as we were moving this along, raising money, doing all this stuff. And when we only had 12 people, by the time I got back, whatever petty problems there were, people could just keep it under their hat and then come talk to me about it, and then I could solve the problems. But I will tell you, on the hire of the 13th employee, all hell broke loose. Unlike Jesus, though, Dr. Golfo could hire an HR manager to take on the extra help. And soon they ended up expanding to nearly 30 employees. And Dr. Golfo would need all of those colleagues for the trial that was to come, because it would be one of the most defining trials of his life. And it would all be to save the lives of patients he didn't even know. 
Dr. Golfo's challenges didn't stop at just putting together a great team of great scientists and marketers. You're going to hear about one of the hardest challenges of Dr. Golfo's career, and it nearly killed Valstar before it was ever able to help its first patient. That story, the rest of the story, after this break, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and we're back with the incredible true story of one doctor, his drug, and his quest to save lives. We just heard Dr. Joseph Golfo talk about how incredibly deadly bladder cancer can be, and how his drug, Valstar, can save lives like no other drug can. Now listen as Dr. Golfo tells you not just how hard it is to make a drug, but how hard it is to get that drug approved by regulators. Because it's that challenge that determines not only his career, but those of his 30 employees and the lives of thousands of patients. Valsar's story, like every drug story, starts when a scientist, in this case Dr. Mervyn Israel, gives birth to a eureka moment. A birth that's the beginning of a very long life. Uh, you know, once you decide, okay, let's let's move them further you have a lot of preclinical work to do right so first you have to get them manufactured not easy they have to be manufactured according to good good manufacturing practices which is expensive next you have to do um, toxicology studies right so you have to do um, various uh, animals mice rats sometimes you have to do higher order animals like with bladder cancer and the bladder you have to do dog studies because dogs have a, have, a, have a bladder much like humans in sensitivity you then have to um, do all the uh, cancer testing you know it makes sense susceptibility testing if valsar were a child at the end of all that testing he would be about to start kindergarten <laughs> <laughs> Quiet. And he would still just be getting going. Thanks for the tip. Before the drug gets into the hands of doctors and the bodies of patients, it has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, the government agency that assesses the drug's safety and effectiveness, based on clinical trials, which can take anywhere from one year to eight, with an average of four or five. And those trials have to prove safety and effectiveness through what's called a claim which means that the drug achieves the results it claims to. Determining what that claim will be and what those clinical trials will measure and how it will measure them and who will measure them and how the measurements will be measured all starts with a relationship with the FDA. The FDA and the company have a meeting and if they can agree on the claim and the trials, the company should be set up for a smooth approval process. We had a fantastic relationship with the FDA. We were doing everything they asked us to do. We had a letter agreement. A letter agreement is when 
you meet with the agency and you exchange meeting minutes, our version of what happened at the meeting, the FDA's version of what happened at the meeting, and you work out any differences, and then the FDA would write you a letter saying, okay, based on our meetings, well, it is our understanding this is what you're doing, and, and the agreement is, okay, if you, if, you, if you have a complete response rate of 20% or greater, that would serve the basis of approval. So we went and did um, about a hundred patient trial. There were 93 patients to, at the end of the trial, and we proved that we had a, I think it was a 22% complete response rate. Think about that for a minute. A complete response is the cancer going away completely. That's pretty incredible for a drug. Testing that took years, four years actually, and Valsar would now be eight years old. And like any eight-year-old who can't support himself, someone has to nurture that child into the future. And that job fell to Dr. Golfo. At the end of all that nurturing, you present that child to the FDA's panel meeting for approval. Most, however, won't even make it there. Only one out of every 10 drugs will. Only one out of 10 will even be considered for approval. Doesn't that sound like a great industry to be in? But it's their dreams that drive them on. Dreams of driving health to new heights. All those years and all those millions come down to just one day before the FDA panelists, who didn't know it as a baby like Dr. Golfo did, will decide whether or not Valsar will be allowed to go out into the world. And so in preparation of the FDA panel meeting, Dr. Golfo tried to look at Valsar through their eyes. And he found inspiration in an old show. Put myself, like, remember there was a show called The Pretender. Um, I'm trying to pretend I'm a statistician and I'm going through the data the way I, I, I believe statisticians will. Next, I'm going to go through the data the way a medical oncologist will. Next, I'm going to go. And, and so this is what I did to myself. I put, basically put myself in, in the position of that person. And, you know, even the way they breathe and eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I just immersed myself in those characters as I was going through the data the way they would. And, uh, and so I, I basically went through the data through, in five different ways. Dr. Golfo also studied the panel members, like lives depended on it. Because they did. I went to the prior six advisory committee meetings, and I watched them. I didn't just watch them. I studied them. I watched for all the nuance, all the way people's response, the way I was trying to predict body movements, like you know what, what this panel member, uh, what, what their body language says about the way they vote, about just 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 studying FDA people. I just I just studied it, just studied it, and so much so that the last one, now I'm getting nervous because you know ours is ours is uh, coming close. The last one I went to. I got so close to the front of the room, you know, there's like a big U-shaped table. My right thigh was, was pushing on the corner of the table that so much so that I was irritating two panel members who kept giving me dirty looks because I was in their psychic spaces. It's like a, being on an airplane, right? I didn't give a damn. Something that's easier to say when you're in the audience, harder to say when you're the presenter before that panel. As Dr. Golfo universally noticed... Every company, it doesn't matter who they are, Merck, BMS, doesn't matter, little companies, big companies, the people who present are afraid. And they get up there and they show their fear. They grab those, they grab that podium as if it's a shield. 
They could be afraid for many reasons. Maybe it's the fear of public speaking. But most of all, it might be the fear that the truth may not set them free. That despite all the compelling data in the world that's behind them, despite Anthra meeting all the FDA's conditions for approval, he might still lose. Back in Valsar's time, 1998, the chance for approval just at that meeting was only 74%. Overall, only one of every 10,000 drug compounds that scientists create and test will go to market. One out of every 10,000. You have to care a whole heck of a lot to put up with those odds. But back to Dr. Goldfield, no matter what, he was determined to show the FDA that he wasn't afraid of them. I am not gonna use the podium. I'm gonna stand in the middle of that U-shaped table. I'm gonna look each one of them in the eye. I'm gonna non-verbally communicate with them. You can't touch this. You know, I'm gonna be MC Hammer, okay? There's just no way they can know this better than I, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow them away, okay? You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Although his team had something else to say about his podium idea. So my team said to me, Joseph, we love everything you're saying except one thing. Please use the podium. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll use the damn podium, but I'm not going to be intimidated. The panel meeting he's here for is set up just like a criminal trial. Well, almost. Yeah, you have to understand, panel meetings are theater. They are criminal trials is what they are. What you have is you have a huge room typically 500 people watching. You have the prosecution, which is the FDA. You have the judge, which is the FDA. Okay, so the FDA decides on procedure. They decide what's valid and not valid, and they are the prosecution. You have the jury, which is the advisory committee panel members. And you have the defendants, which is, <laughs> which, you know, which is the drug company. Just like any real trial, the defendant is judged by a jury of his peers. The defendant's peers in Valsar's case are urologists who treat the bladder. Those urologists can also be called to the stand as witnesses. Or at least, they're supposed to be able to. Though I asked them not to, the FDA scheduled the advisory committee during the American Urologic Association meeting. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is no urologist worth his or her salt, meaning anyone who publishes, okay, <laughs> is not going to be at the American Urologic Association meeting. That means that the FDA can't get urologic consultants, and I can't get urologic consultants to come to my meeting. And when we come back from the break, you'll hear just what happened to Dr. Golfo and his team, and what that meant not only for his company, Anthra Pharmaceuticals, but also thousands of patients in need around the country. When we read this story in the Wall Street Journal, it read like a thriller. And my goodness, the stakes are high. And he's going before that panel, those judges, that jury. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. The story of a drug, a drug company, and the battle to get that drug to market.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the amazing and true story of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and its life from inception in the laboratory to when it finally gets into the doctor's office, or at least we hope that's how this story will end. In Washington, regulators put drugs on trial in order to determine whether they get out into the world or not. And as you are about to hear, this trial is made for TV, but isn't like one you've ever seen or heard before. The FDA was judging a disease that affects 70,000 people per year, but it ensured that no urologist would be able to make it for the trial. In a real trial, the defense would object and make sure that the witnesses could come. But this isn't a real trial. It's the FDA. So what can he do? What would Merck do in that situation? What they would do is they would pull their NDA. They would retract it. And they would, you know, talk to the analyst and say, well, heavens, we're not gonna, we're not gonna put our drug for X, Y, or Z before a panel where no one treats it. What would happen to their stock price? Nothing. <laughs> because they have 80 products on the market and four others coming up for review. You know, they know how to play the game. How about a little company running out of money? What are you going to say to investors who want to believe the story? Why did you pull your NDA? Oh, are they going to believe me, my version? Of course they're not going to believe me. So we had to go through with this. What if Dr. Golfo pulled his NDA, his new drug application? If little companies like Anthra started giving up on their drugs and pulling their applications for them, it would mean that more than half of all new drugs approved each year wouldn't exist. They just wouldn't exist. June 1st, 1998. It's now the morning of the trial. The day-long event will start in just hours. And Dr. Golfo has a horrible feeling. And I remember waking up that morning and just doing my final prep, and I started shaking. I mean, literally shaking. Because I saw on the laptop the two icons, the IPO Roadshow icon and the Advisory Committee uh, Slides icon. And it just hit me in that moment right before I'm about to go up for the biggest thing in my life. How crazy this was. This is nuts. Being about to run out of money unless this is successful is crazy. And then I learned, no, that's biotech. Okay, that's biotech. And that wasn't the only thing weighing on his mind. It was interesting, there were personal things going on too because my parents were not very happy with me because I wasn't seeing patients. I'm an MD, right? Trained, they paid for it. And what did I do with this MD? I'm a paper pusher now. (laughs) I'm a finance guy now. I'm not really helping people. You help more people, by the way, in industry than you do seeing patients. You get drugs approved to treat millions of people, but nevertheless, they didn't want to hear that. So what I did was, you know, they weren't too pleased with me over the years. I called them up and I said, you want to see what I'm doing with my MD degree? You want to see? Why don't you come down to DC and watch your son go up against 12 of the smartest people in the country? You know, I kind of put it in their faces. And with that, they walked into the FDA's courtroom with all the bankers and financiers, employees and staffers, doctors and scientists, spectators, journalists, and his parents, all watching him. Dr. Gofo said a prayer. And then it began. Well, we, we go to the panel meeting and... Um, you know, God was with me. I, I presented, I, I, I gave a, a flawless presentation. Everything I wanted to do, I pulled off. 
It was clear, it was crisp. Panel members had maybe two or three questions. I handled them the way I should, and uh, I was really happy with myself. Dr. Golfo's prayer was answered, and his months of insane preparation had paid off. But now, it was the prosecution's turn. So then the FDA person gets up to, to present. And on slide three of his presentation, his boss had to interrupt and say, excuse me, panel, um, that number 37% really should be 45%. Okay, fine. A few other slides later, some other thing, some bulleted point about something, the boss interrupts the presenter, the FDA presenter, says, excuse me, panel, um, we met on that. No, what really should say there is, but okay, fine. Twice now, the FDA had misrepresented facts to the panel. For whatever reason, the FDA, in charge of promoting and protecting our health, couldn't get their presentation straight. But they weren't done yet. And then the third time, you know, a few slides later, again, this is in front of 500 people. Panel, you know, the, the, te- the, the intensity in the room, the tension, okay? Third time, third time, the boss interrupts the presenter and says, well, I'm sorry to say, this is clearly a prior version of the slides. This slide shouldn't even be in the deck. So please ignore it. As if the FDA's prosecution wasn't shocking enough, Dr. Golfo couldn't believe what happened next. So the, the panel chair says, will Dr. Golfo come to the microphone? So there's two podiums there's, with the microphone, right? There's the defense podium, right? The company podium and the prosecution or FDA podium. So I go up to my podium and I don't know what's coming next. I, at all the panel meetings I ever went to, this never happened. So I, I'm, I'm nervous. And so the panel chair says, Dr. Golfo, not that podium. So I walk around to the FDA podium and I get there again, you know, like, like, like a deer in the headlights. I'm just looking at, at the panel chair, uh, Barbara Dutcher was her name. And I'm looking at Dr. Dutcher and she looks at me, she says, Dr. Golfo, we would like you to present FDA slides. So now I'm asked, I'm asked to present the case against the company, because that's really what it is, it's a prosecution. This was the first time anyone's ever heard of this happening at the FDA, being asked to testify against yourself because the FDA is unable to do the job. When Dr. Golfo finished, again, the panel adjourned for lunch. So at lunchtime, the head FDA reviewer comes up to me, and again, I'm being, um, I'm being mauled. I got, I got people I don't even know of telling me how phenomenal this was. I got, I got investors, potential investors. I got VCs who are in the room who are current investors. I got bankers. I got lawyers. I'm just being inundated. I got to go to the bathroom yet, too, because I got <laughs> to present more. But anyway, so I you know, tap on my shoulder, and it's the head FDA reviewer. And he says, Joe, you have a minute? I said, do I have a minute? I said, you're God, okay? You're the FDA. Do I have a minute? Of course I have a minute. So yeah, let's go. So we go over to the side, and he says, um, he said, I got three things to tell you. He said, number one, that was a phenomenal presentation. Thank you. Number two, you're an honest guy. He says, you presented your bad equally to your good. He says, and we really like that. He says, and number three, he, he motioned me to get closer, whispers in my ear, you got it in the bag. The head judge and jury foreman basically told him that the afternoon session where the panel members would deliberate over the drug would be a formality. He was practically guaranteed approval. But there was a problem. 
the way an FDA's panel deliberation works isn't exactly the same as a real court trial. The problem is no one can say a word. Only FDA can say a word. The, 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 prosecu- the, the defense can't say a word. So you're going to listen to their jury deliberations as they talk about X, Y, or Z. Then there's going to be a vote. So it, it's, it's, it's a trial, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a trial in Russia. Okay? This is not American justice. After the break, you'll hear what the FDA's final verdict was. Would Valstar get to save lives of folks with bladder cancer? Or would it go into the trash? The final chapter of this amazing story. Next, this is Our American Stories, The Birth of a Drug. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Joseph Golfo, then COO of Anthra Pharmaceuticals. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final segment of the incredible true story of the life of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and the doctor-turned-entrepreneur Joseph Golfo, who is fighting for Valstar's life. As we pick up, we're waiting with Dr. Golfo for the FDA to render their final verdict on this drug, and we're about to learn that regulators in Washington don't always make the right call. And the wrong call can have devastating effects on everyone. The panel meeting is called back to the courtroom for the final session. And then this. I can't say a word. The jury, the panel members who don't treat the disease, start talking about the product. And at one point, one of these individuals slapped the table And he says, I don't care how good these data are. Complete response, again, which means totally eradicating the disease. Complete response is the completely wrong endpoint for this disease. And I can't say a word. But complete response, total reversal of the disease, was the very endpoint that the FDA had agreed to for Valstar, regardless of whatever this doctor thought. And remember, the FDA had refused to schedule this panel meeting so urologists could attend. Urologists who actually treat the bladder and who would actually use the drug. But instead, the FDA invited this doctor, an oncologist, who didn't treat this kind of cancer and who wouldn't use this drug. And he believed it didn't matter if this drug is effective. And it didn't matter if this drug means that folks won't have to get their bladders removed. And that patients won't have to spend their life peeing into a bag. 
he had a different set of beliefs about how cancer treatments should be considered. He was saying that it doesn't matter if you completely eradicate the disease. What matters is, did the patient live longer, in his view? Now, that's not right. In, in bladder cancer, if you eradicate the disease and you stave off cystectomy, that's the gold standard. That's what you want. So, you know, he's an oncologist and he was talking about other diseases. And by the way, I don't even agree when it comes to other diseases, but this was a position that he wanted to advance. And beliefs, even bad ones, have real-world effects. So it was, it was the Johnny Cochran moment. When you have someone who speaks with authority and is a bit domineering and projects great personal authority, the others are lemmings. The others just follow. So what happened was they took the vote, 11 to 0 unanimous no. 11 to 0. Dr. Golfo went from having in the bag to, with his one comment, losing it all. He was blown away and humiliated in front of his peers, co-workers, and maybe worst of all, his parents, who had come to watch him save lives and instead watched his career crash and burn before their very eyes. So Dr. Golfo does what any man would have done. He confronted the doctor that sabotaged the trial. I said, I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, I... I wanted to make a very, very important point about the way about the way the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee really should look at um, cancer. I said, and you picked my meeting to make that point? Yes, this doctor chose the trial of a new drug to make a general policy point about the FDA. And worse, a very controversial policy point. But none of that mattered anymore. What was done was done. And now it was Dr. Golfo's time to get confronted. My parents come up to me and my father says to me, let me buy you a drink. And I said, I can't, I gotta get to the airport. I, I, I gotta get to the airport. And uh, he said to me, I remember him getting very angry with me. He said, after what I just watched, where do you, could you possibly need to be? Dr. Golfo's response to his dad wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he had to say it. Just because he was a company executive didn't mean that he got to take a day off after a devastating personal and professional crisis. To Dr. Golfo, being a company executive meant doing what had to be done. I have a company full of people on the West Coast waiting to have a pre-launch meeting, waiting for me, waiting for me to tell them all that happened here. And what happened here isn't good. I have to get out there and I gotta, I gotta lead. I gotta go out there and lead. TV news never shows this next part of the lives of executives. Their raw humanity? But Dr. Golfo remembers this part, maybe more clearly and vividly than anything else. And I cried. I cried from Dulles to uh, whatever the name of the airport in San Diego is the whole time. I, uh, uh, I was just, I was, I, I can't explain what I was. I, I got to my hotel. Uh, my hotel was on like the 13th or 14th floor and, and there were there was sliding doors and there were rails up, like four foot high rails. I just remember grabbing that rail and looking over the edge and like just saying to myself, it's a good thing there's rails here. Um, just, just, just a horrible, horrible feeling. The hotel was where the Urology Association was hosting its meeting and they were all the people who couldn't come to the trial. 
Dr. Golfo ran into a few of the urologists in the hall who had been helping him with the drug and told them what had happened. He was livid, and I told him what happened. He said, but so-and-so doesn't even treat this disease. He got angry. I told the second one, same reaction. Told the third one, same reaction. And then, instead of dwelling, he started doing. And the plan was this. These guys are surgeons. Urologists are surgeons. The last thing a surgeon wants is an internist telling them how to treat things. Okay? So what just happened? You had an internist, an oncologist, butting his nose in a surgical disease, superficial bladder cancer. So what I did was I was able to get 12 of the country's top urologic surgeons to go with me to the FDA. And again, Dr. Golfo had found his perfect number, 12. Dr. Golfo and his 12 urologists went to the FDA to meet with a senior administrator for what's called a supervisory review request to explain that it was wrong for oncologists to pass judgment on the disease treated by urologists, especially when the FDA prevented the urologists from even attending. The administrator agreed. And he sent Dr. Golfo and Anthra back to the very next panel meeting to restate their case for Valstar, something which was also brand spanking new in the history of the FDA. On September 1st, 1998, and without any new evidence, Valstar got a vote of 10 to one, this time in favor. But it would turn out to be three months too late. By now, they'd become a pariah in the industry. What happened was the window of opportunity to raise money closed. So even though we got the approval, a nuclear winter emerged, I'm sorry, descended upon the public markets to raise money. So we were not able to raise money. So now the company with a product approved, okay, so we have a product approval and no money, what do we do? And, you know, there was a debate uh, at the board level, what should be done? And um, so, uh, so the company basically fragmented, and um, I left the company. I went on to something else, and then uh, the drug languished. Really, it would take more than three years for Valstar to get bought by another company and get into the hands of doctors and onto the bladders of patients. More than fourteen years in all for Valstar. Those three lost years were vital for patients and Anthra. Tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. But because of the FDA's carelessness, after years of Anthra's carefulness, they weren't. Anthra itself died, taking with it 25 to $30 million in investments. Money that should have been turned into more money and allowed for reinvestment into more life-saving drugs. Dr. Mervyn Israel had two other drugs he wanted to create and test, which would now be postponed for years as a result of Anthra's collapse. And the careers of nearly 30 people fell to pieces, despite the beautiful creation they had all forged. Dr. Golfo may have been the luckiest survivor of the Anthra debacle, as he became known as the man who would get things through the FDA. Dr. Golfo doesn't think it should be that way, though. Innovation shouldn't come down to one man. 
and it drives Dr. Golfo crazy. It's terrible. Well, it should come down to does the product work. It should not come down to whether the process works. That it's not coming down to the product. It's coming down to many other things. What if you had someone who, who didn't prepare like as, as I did? It shouldn't depend on me. It should depend on the product. And it's getting down to where innovation is becoming a chance occurrence when it should be a rote occurrence. Dr. Golfo, though, would soon go back to the FDA and shepherd another company through the approval process, a story he would write a book about called Innovation Breakdown, How the FDA and Wall Street Cripple Medical Advances. That story will bring you next. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm John Woods. Wow. Great job, John, the whole team. Just superb work. And by the way, Dr. Golfo is now the executive director of the Lewis Center for Healthcare at my alma mater, Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I did my undergraduate work. And there he shares his experiences in the medical industry. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Get this story. Get the link. Send it to friends. Friends. 